0: This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We know infection rates are accelerating in the Southwest. In the Rocky Mountain West, after sweeping through states in the Midwest. We talked about a growing number of hospitals canceling or delaying some planned medical procedures to preserve staff and beds. The death toll in U.S. nursing homes and long term care facilities topping 100,000. And meantime, you've got U.S. airline traffic rising as some Americans traveled for Thanksgiving, despite tons and tons of warnings from American health officials. Cases right now, passing 59.8 million deaths, topping 1.4 million. So let's talk about the virus. Our daily check uh, today with Dr. Michelle Longmire, CEO at Medable. It's a platform connecting patient sites and clinical trial teams. And she joins us on the phone in Palo Alto. Dr. Longmire, so nice to have you here with us. First of all, um, tell us a little bit about what you are seeing on the ground there out there on uh, the West Coast. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me today. You know, I think everyone
1: is talking about the risk uh, mitigation strategies that are really needed for the holiday. Um, Of course, everyone loves Thanksgiving. It's really a quintessential family holiday in the United States. And unfortunately, this year, you know, the best thing to do is to really, you know, take the safety measures into consideration. And unfortunately, this means really not spending time um, with family in person you know, if they haven't been within the same quarantine group. So I think that's really front of mind for people in California. And we're just thinking about how we can look forward, you know, to a vaccine and to an an era where we can be back with our family and friends. But certainly people are thinking about holiday, but with safety in mind.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I know that your specialty is um, autoimmune skin diseases, but I do want to, um, before we get into the kind of work you guys are doing at your firm um, and your company, that specifically when you see the rising numbers of people who are traveling, airline traffic, does that say to you that in a couple of weeks we probably are going to look back at Thanksgiving as another super spreader event?
1: I mean, you know, the data is the data and yeah. it's it, we know that the social distancing and we know that the masks and we know that, you know, the isolation measures are critical and, you know, this is a very contagious illness and it, you know, the probabilities are what they are and if you defy those by, you know, crowded airplanes and, you know, uh, public, you know, public gatherings, it, we do see that the disease spreads. So you know it would be it would be very you know it would be unlikely that we won't see that following the holiday because you know people if they are not heeding the warnings we're going to see you know much greater numbers and the spread is going to be there so certainly i think that's why everyone's preparing for that because we're observing that there you know people are still traveling and the airplanes are certainly an area where we know that there is you know, contagion
0: risk. Right. It's the antithesis of everything that everybody says, right? It's closed. It's lots of people. It's not an ideal situation. So talk to us us a little bit about the work you guys are doing at Medable. You guys are a platform. You bring together patient sites and clinical trial teams. I have uh, members of my family that are in the medical community. So I understand this this whole idea, especially when there are, um, you know, therapies out there, you know, finding people who might be good for a trial which just helps in kind of get learning to know more about a treatment but tell me about what you guys are doing specifically when it comes to COVID-19
1: Sure so you know clinical trials are a critical component of developing new medications and I think it was an area people didn't really think about prior to COVID but then once COVID hit you know the role of the clinical trials for vaccine and therapy development became something that the broader public was aware of and you know you look at the news coming out of Pfizer and Moderna Let's take Pfizer, for example. You know, we've had over 40,000 volunteers into the Pfizer vaccine study. Mm. And these are people who, you know, want to be a part of the research efforts, who also are eager to get the vaccination. And they've played a foundational role in, you know, getting through this pandemic. You know, I think our role, Medible, in this is to tackle some of the biggest challenges facing clinical trials. And one of the biggest challenges is access. You know, the pandemic um, has resulted in closures of many of you know the general kind of day-to-day healthcare facilities, right? We don't want people going in there because we don't want to spread the disease, right? And clinical trials, in a traditional sense, are no different than if you go to your doctor. Uh, what is pioneering is really a way to access the clinical trial in the convenience of your own home, and this has become extremely important in the setting of the pandemic, and has become extremely important in these large vaccine trials you know, where we need the participation, people are eager to be a part of research, and we need to bring that into the comfort of their own home, you know, through the various aspects of the clinical trial. So we've seen a big shift from clinic-based healthcare delivery and clinical trial delivery to much more of a remote, digital, and connected ecosystem, and our has really been at the forefront of that transition and transformation.
0: We're a high-tech world, Dr. Longmire, but still, of course, uh, technology doesn't always, it, it fails us occasionally. I asked, um, or I put out the question of there you are in Palo Alto, smack in the middle of Silicon Valley. Healthcare, we know, has been slow to change, slow to disrupt, but the virus has definitely made people um, do more telemedicine. We'd start to see some changes in the healthcare system. What role can and should Silicon Valley be playing even more so when it comes to kind of bringing healthcare to the 21st century?
1: Sure. I think that the pandemic is an unprecedented opportunity for Silicon Valley and technology to show the value around major changes. So, you know, what we've seen is, say, telemedicine—you know, utilization up by five x of what it was before. This is, you know, really important that as as a tech industry, we're able to move quickly to use the window of opportunity to bring in these changes. And to really, for us as a clinical trial company, to serve patients in new ways as they're looking to connect to the healthcare system with new technologies.
0: No, and bringing it back to your company, just got about 40 seconds left here. I mean, the more patients that get involved in clinical trials, we ultimately, on the other side, figure out what treatments can best serve us as a, as a population.
1: Absolutely. I mean, clinical trials are the route to us you know, achieving cures to 7,000 or more uncured diseases today, and they are a fundamental part of us developing new medication. So, it's to the benefit of everyone. I'd encourage everyone, you know, to consider clinical trials. It's super important for us as, you know, we move forward with better health as a society and certainly as we've seen with COVID-19.
0: All right. Listen, great to check in with you. And I'm glad we were able to reconnect. Be well. Have a great Thanksgiving. Dr. Michelle Longmire, she is CEO at Metal and she is joining us on the phone from Palo Alto, California. This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. We continue to learn every day about the power of social media companies such as Google and others. And this story, reported for Bloomberg Business Week, really plays into that big time. It's how Google's deep pockets really make some of its rivals less eager for an antitrust crackdown. You're probably saying, "Wait, what?" So let's get into this um, with our own Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Be- Joel Weber. He's joining us on the Access Line in Brooklyn. This story written by Mark Bergen, who is technology reporter at Bloomberg News. But Joel, let me kick it off with you first. I mean, this is a story that I feel like, you know, we continue to see some of these big social media players, big, you know, uh, tech players, they just continue to dominate. And some of it is because of some of these relationships they have with even some of their smaller competitors.
2: Yeah, that's that's what makes this story, um, I think, part of uh, an interesting antitrust conversation. Um, and and an element that um, we hadn't I hadn't um, heard before, and yeah. and part of that is you know Google has really you know just an amazing um, modernization ability, and as part of that they are not shy about throwing their cash around, hmm. and a lot of that cash goes to 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 uh, we'll call them rivals. Even though that you might not totally always think of them as, as rivals, um, right. but but in this case, um, and the one that I'd love to have Mark talk more about, M- Mozilla, which has a rival product in F- its Firefox browser, um, actually makes a lot of money from Google, even though Google has a rival product in Chrome. So so Mark, talk to us about how. How how Mozilla and Firefox sort of see this relationship with Google in light of the antitrust conversation that we're we're in the middle of.
3: Yeah, sure. I think there's like two two different versions. Right, there's the front facing sort of official version, which is uh, we have Mozilla in the, in the story saying. You know, it's interesting that they actually switched to Yahoo in 2014 because Yahoo was willing to give them uh, a lump sum from our, from my understanding, even like 100 million more a year a year than than Google, uh, which was great from from Mozilla's standpoint um, to have you know, that much more money. Uh, but then a lot of their Firefox users just started switching over to Google. And so by, by their telling, officially, you know, a lot of people just prefer Google Search o, over uh, alternatives. Uh, you you talk to sort of privately with a lot of people that, that they work there, and they're like diehard privacy advocates, right? And uh, they're kind of, some of them are uh, disturbed or upset about some of Google's privacy practices. And so it's they, like, you know, as much as they want to push on on. Uh, Google for Chrome, and they have done some new marketing, and, and you know they came out with a great billboard a few years ago that said big browser is watching you. They're, they're well aware that they're sort of like poking the bear, uh, and, and they're, they're actually kind of targeting who is their biggest bank roller. So it's this very uh, awkward, I think, kind of unique position for the company to be in um, that, that many other Google partners are also in.
2: Right, and, and so that kind of brings us to the antitrust context um, so, how how do how would like a regulator um, look at at an arrangement like this and try and make sense of it?
3: I think I mean, you know, Mozilla's come out and, and publicly, and they think mo- mostly we expect them to privately to say you know, the DOJ is coming after these search deals that Google has, um, where they you know, sort of pay up front for for distribution of the search engine. Um, that seems to be something where you're going to see a lot of companies that that would maybe normally come out in support of that. Now arguing, please don't make those illegal because they're really important for our, for our bottom line. Um, so I, I don't know how the DOJ is going to land on that. You know, you certainly like the Apple-Google relationship is a really fascinating one. Well,
0: get into that one. That's the one that blew my mind in your story because it's, I mean, they really benefit from each other.
3: It's it's a great mutual benefit. I mean, Google yeah. always talks about um, how it has a horizontal business, right? Uh, and, and so, so much of their advertising, right, they're sharing revenue with publishers. They're sharing uh, with websites and, and YouTube, right? It's it's all the same sort of model. And with Android, right, every single you know Samsung gets a, a lump of change every year from the, the Google searches on Samsung, uh, and Apple gets the same deal, although it is a much more secretive deal. There are very few people at both companies that know. Uh, you know the details of that. Um, you know, we reported Apple had had talked to Microsoft and Bing a few years ago. I think that really scared Google uh, because they get so much revenue from from iPhones.
2: Uh, Mark, can we talk about like Mozilla specifically and like how mm-hmm. how much do do they get in in cash, cold hard cash from from Google, and and how significant is that to to their bottom line? Yeah, so we
3: don't Mozilla
2: is a it's a nonprofit.
3: Uh, they, uh, it's a private company owned by a nonprofit. So they put out numbers. The last numbers from I think was 2018, where we they don't give the exact figure. say, a uh, line on that it says from Google, but they have royalties, and the royalties were close to you know. Um, they said about 90% of the royalties, I believe, in 2018 is over 400 million a year, and, and revenue, and a bulk of that comes from these uh, search deals. And so we're, from our based on our sourcing, that's like you know about 80% probably minimum of that of, of their entire revenue comes so this is close to half a half a billion dollars a year
2: yeah uh, amazing um so you know you you also mentioned that you know and you mentioned this earlier the privacy element and one of the things that you sort of had explored or was explored in the story um is that there was actually a, a kind of a nascent uh, ability to Joel, sort of j- jump into the search game. Oh, you're going to cut me off for Joe Biden, <laughs> aren't you?
0: <laughs> I love you dearly. Happy Thanksgiving. This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Messer from Bloomberg Radio. So, I do want to get to our Bloomberg Green segment because changing times based on the changing political winds, that story in our Bloomberg Green segment today, really about how today's smart money is staying away from Arctic oil drilling. Let's get into it with Bloomberg News environmental regulations reporter Jennifer DeLowey. She is with us on the phone from the nation's capital. Hey, Jen, nice to have you here with us. So, we're talking about drilling rights and selling those drilling rights. That's something the Trump administration has been pretty aggressive about doing
4: absolutely uh, you know they they were part of a push uh, several years ago to get Congress to basically mandate that they stand up a drilling program in the Arctic as part of the tax cut bill in 2017 and now they're taking really concrete steps to try to get uh, drilling rights sold really in the final days and maybe even hours of the Trump presidency we could see mm. a lease sale. January 19th, uh, trying
0: to basically get these uh, drilling rights out the door. And folks are lining up for them, correct? A little, a little sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell, yeah, listen, it's, it's, listen. I feel like this speaks to so many conversations we have on Bloomberg that, right, you can put it out there, but the winds have changed, especially when it comes to things like this and the impact on the climate and kind of where the energy markets are going.
5: That's
4: exactly right. I mean, we see the same thing in the market, you know, with uh, coal and natural right. gas and in the electricity market. And here, you know, it's it's just remarkable. Had this sale happened even a year ago, uh, you'd have probably seen much more interest, much more activity, including some bigger names. And and the, the reality is that oil companies are facing, you know, not just the reality of a Biden administration that has promised to block uh, Arctic drilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these leases are really going to be worthless for four years at least. But they're also seeing, you know, financing dry up for these projects. And the PR, uh, you know, hit that they would take uh, from from drilling in the Arctic, which is wildly unpopular, is a significant factor, too. A year ago, some of these considerations were not at play.
0: Jen, you know what I think really, that was, I thought, interesting, that anybody who bids on these drilling rights, as you say in your reporting, will need outside financing. And again, as you said, the PR image, there are a lot of banks who are like, Thanks, but no thanks, because increasingly we're seeing among the big investors, institutional investors, they are looking at the investments, the loans that a bank makes, right, Uh, the business that it transacts uh, in terms of how it fits into increasingly ESG criteria.
4: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, we've seen five major U.S. banks adopt policies saying that they are not going to finance oil and gas projects in the Arctic Refuge. And they're saying, you know, that they're adopting these policies not Uh, because they're, you know, just being pressured by environmentalists, which is Mm -hmm. something you hear from the Trump administration. But in fact, there are real financial risks involved. They've already taken uh, hits uh, with their oil investments. Uh, And of course, they're concerned about risks to the climate, to their investments and their reputation if they keep underwriting these projects.
0: So what happens, though, if somebody does buy a lease before the Biden administration steps in? um, It's real, right? And it can lead to drilling?
4: In fact, it can. So these leases, if they are formally, not just sold, but actually formally issued before Biden is inaugurated, they're 10-year contracts, and it's really hard to to get out of a contract uh, and would be really hard for the Biden administration to walk away from them. Uh, The reality is every single permit these companies would need to actually do something with those leases is not going to come in the next four years. I mean, we're talking about drilling permits, but also environmental, uh, various environmental approvals and wildlife approvals. So all of those are an obstacle to actually standing up activity in the next four years. One thing that's going to be interesting to see is really who shows up. Uh, We won't have big names, but we could see some small, some speculators and little-known companies that have ties with uh, Alaska interests that want to see this area develop.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating story and a deep dive into what's going on. Uh, You know, as everything else is going on around us, we've got to keep a watch on these kinds of things. Jen, thank you so much. Jennifer Delowey. she is environmental regulations reporter for us here at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Green segment today. Check her out on Twitter. And uh, you can check her out on the Bloomberg Terminal and also at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. just scanning my Bloomberg terminal, and yeah, this is the most read story in the past eight hours on the Bloomberg. And kind of, uh oh, feeling a little bit chilly across Wall Street. This story is about Bank of America's leaders, uh, how they are planning year end bonuses that break with Wall Street's traders' hopes for hefty raises. It's kind of odd considering they've had a bit of a record setting run. So let's explain what's going on. Michelle Davis, finance reporter at Bloomberg News, she's with us once again on the phone from Vermont. Michelle, good to have you here with us. You know, you put bonus in a headline and it's going to trend high on the Bloomberg. What's going on here?
5: Yeah, so, you know, as you mentioned, Bank of America's senior executives have been floating plans uh, right now about, you know, what bonuses are going to look like. It's that time of year. And a lot of people in the industry, you know, traders have been expecting to get big payouts because trading revenue has surged this year. You know, it's been one of the best years in in a decade or or since the financial crisis, uh, some people feel like they've worked harder than they ever have before. And, uh, the color we're getting is that execs are actually thinking about keeping the bonus pool flat for traders, uh, even though, you know, trading revenue jumped 20% in the first nine months of the year. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that, you know, bank of America, while it has wall street operations also has a big consumer bank that, uh, hasn't been performing as well uh, over the past few months. Uh, this, you know, matches what, what other banks have also been dealing with. And so, you know, banks have had to put up a ton of money, billions of dollars to cover potential loan losses on the consumer side of their businesses. And so in preparation for that, they're having to temper expectations about bonuses on the on the Wall Street side to try to, you know, Sturdy the ship, steady the ship before a possible uncertain 2021.
0: Right, and some would say, listen, they—that's executives, the C-suite being responsible and looking at the whole business and saying, okay, what do we need to do to make sure one year from now we're in pretty good shape, right? Because we still don't have a lot of visibility about next year, Um, and so some of them would say, or some would argue, right, that it's top brass being responsible.
5: Exactly, exactly, and you know, it's a, a pretty big deal because. As we've been talking about, you know, this year, the five biggest U.S. investment banks, you know, they're on pace to generate almost $100 billion in in trading revenue for the first time in more than 10 years. And if Bank of America comes out and says, you know, bonuses are probably going to be flat, all the other banks, they – pay close attention to you know not only surveys about compensation but also what what competitors are doing because no one wants to be the one paying the least but they also don't want to want to be yeah. you know the, the entity that's handing out big wads of cash when they could get away with right. you know paying less and so bank of america coming out you know this story could give others cover to pay less than what they would have paid uh and all of this kind of i guess based on what mm. we know from surveys you know this a compensation uh, consultant, Johnson, Johnson, Johnson Associates. Sorry, Johnson Associates. It's, it's compensation okay. consultant. Earlier this month, they projected that uh, equity traders, you know, could see bonuses jump by 25%. Bond traders could see them increase by 45% or more. Mm. If one of the big biggest Wall Street banks is going to keep it flat, then, you know, maybe the survey wasn't uh, totally right. But we still don't know. There's still a-, a month left in the quarter, in the fourth quarter. Things could change. Um, but, yeah. Well, and I think it's a,
0: it's a key point about Bank of America, right? Because they've got a big consumer side. And I have to say, anecdotally, I know people who've been reaching out to some of the big banks for either home equity loans or so on. And what they're hearing is that they're not doing any kind of new loans, So they're being a lot more conservative going forward. And you do wonder what that means about what they're seeing internally, maybe on the consumer side of the business. I'm not saying B of A specifically, but just in general. That's what I've been hearing. So I don't know. like, um I'm thinking about an individual. Can they lobby for a larger payout? Like, how does this work? And just got about 40 seconds here.
5: Yeah, so what we understand is that not all of this is set in stone just yet. If there are high performers who, you know, did really well, there's still time for executives to lobby for larger payouts for them. Uh, But I think that the other big thing to keep in mind here for Bank of America is there's a lot of optics here. You know, the economy is struggling. Businesses are shuttering. People are losing their jobs. Yeah, Brian Moynihan, the CEO, you know, he recognizes that it probably doesn't look great to be handing out huge checks to, you know, traders at a time like this. And so that's definitely something that's going to be coloring any decision.
0: Yeah, and safe to say that's left over from the financial crisis, right? We saw a lot of sensitivity um, in terms of what the big banks were doing, what Wall Street was doing, certainly at the time of the financial crisis and and having to kind of either force it, you know, rein it in because the regulators are just trying to not be uh, tone deaf amid a really, really tough time. Um, Listen, thanks so much. Michelle, thank you. Have a great Thanksgiving. Michelle Davis, she's finance reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us.
3: The cat sat on the is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: Yes, indeed. We're just about a little bit under 12 minutes away from the closing bell, wrapping up at least the first three days of trading in this holiday shortened trading week. Of course, we come back on Friday for a shortened day as well. Uh, In the meantime, let's check out the trade. Back with us is Sean Cruz, Manager of Trader Strategy at TD Ameritrade. He joins us on the phone in Florida. Sean, nice to have you here. Um, Just looking at some of the notes you shared with us, You say the elevator ride takes a pause this morning, but it's still been an impressive week. It really has been, hasn't it?
6: It has, and actually what I thought was interesting, I I went and looked at some of the volumes we were seeing, and, and there was actually some pretty decent volumes we were seeing behind these moves, and I think that shows that there actually maybe is um, a little bit more staying power to some of the gains that we have seen. Because I think that's what everyone's really asking themselves: is Is this is this move higher? Is this something that you know we should we should expect to to be able to maintain? Or maybe should I be dialing back exposure just in case things do turn around rather quickly? And you know they say markets can kind of go up up an elevator, but they go down you know off a cliff. I think that's what everyone's asking themselves. But looking at the volumes, I think this move seems sustainable at least for the time being. Why? I think the big thing is really markets are looking ahead and and I really think the the news that Janet Yellen is is being considered or is considered a front runner for the nomination for Treasury secretary really gives I think, a lot of optimism to markets because the assumption also alongside that is that you're not going to see Powell go anywhere. And now you're going to have Janet Yellen, who who I think certainly in the past has, has been a vocal proponent of strong fiscal stimulus from Congress. So we will have who we got from the the minutes today, we know that it is going to remain accommodative. They say in the future, and they're they're willing to actually step up and do more on the asset purchase side. Mm. Um, and and that's something they've all been calling for. And now it looks like you're also going to have a big proponent of, of accommodative policy on the fiscal side as well.
5: Well,
0: and when you look at things, listen. When you invest in the market, there are people who play it short term. There are people who play it long term. And I do think about. When we get on the other side of COVID, do we hopefully have the policies in place to create a much more sustainable, enduring economy—not one that is just beneficial to Wall Street, but to the broader economy, which ultimately means a more prosperous economy for everyone?
6: I think so, and and I think the the thing that I, I find really interesting the beat with, with the nomination today, on is, is you've heard Powell talk about wanting to really focus on on more inclusiveness especially in terms of jobs gains um and, and jenny ellen certainly echoed that sentiment and i think people need to keep in mind her her background her her bread and butter so to speak is really um as a, a labor economist so she is is very very strong when it comes to labor economics and as we come out of this recovery um what sort of, of jobs um growth we're getting you know does that translate into into well-paying jobs with with Strong wages and is it going to be more inclusive across the board? I think having a, a labor economist in the as a Secretary of Treasury, and then mm. you also have um, Powell, who's also indicated he wants to to can make sure that's a focus of the Fed moving forward. Sort of gives you a little bit more faith that that may actually be um, the experience of this recovery when we do get to the other side of this.
0: You know, Sean, we just did a story, Charlie Pellet and I, that basically talked about when you know a lot of the global fund managers, they, you know, see an end to the pandemic, but they differ in terms of strategy on how to play it. And there's a lot of discussions about market rotation, right? And depending on the day we see market rotation, whether it's into some of the value names, whether it's continuation, finally, with small caps. Um, And then all of a sudden, tech comes roaring back. And it's like, wait a minute, okay, so much for market rotation. Um, So I don't know, do you have a strategy, you know, that you are kind of thinking about when it comes to the COVID recovery and what it will be, or is it something for a few months now and then something else for 2021?
6: Well, I think one, the first thing everyone was asking so was, is, are we going to see a, a true um, rotation in the sense of you are going to see money flowing out of some of those high flying tech stocks that have done so well this year, come out of, of, of that pile and go into some of the more cyclical or small caps are a lot more of the just value oriented plays right now. Um, And I think what we've learned over the past couple of weeks, there was an initial reaction when Pfizer announced their, their vaccine where you sort of saw that, Play out on the screens. You saw um, the Nasdaq actually get hit, but a lot of the cyclical sectors and, and the indices that really have a, a strong weighting to some of those more cyclical type names actually did really well. Um, mm. I think markets sort of reassess that. And, and the sense I'm getting now is, look, we're going to hold on to some of these tech names. We think they really have made some pretty strong progress in user growth, getting people on their platform this year. Um, but we're we're also seeing some some attractive valuations in the cyclical sector so it really looks like equities are more generally favored and you're asking yourself where the money where's the money going to come from if if you just really look at any any gauge of of sort of sideline cash and that could be in looking at money markets look at um, savings rates in, in depository institutions All of those are incredibly high right now. So I think that's where you're going to see um, the money flow from. It's going to come out of being really truly on the sidelines in markets and savings accounts. But I also think some of of what you've seen, just the strong demand flowing into Treasury that's pushed yields so low, I think you're actually going to see that also reverse a little bit. And and Mm. when you start to think of what that means for, for interest rates and yields, it can favor certain areas like banks. Um, but also there are some interest rate-sensitive areas of, of the economy and the market-thinking housing, automotive, that maybe are, are going to be on the other side of that coin. But yeah. generally, across the board, I think it favors equities.
0: What's the story we need to keep a watch on? What's the thing that could be, you know, kind of turn us upside down again here? Is it rising virus numbers, everything taking just a little bit longer than we anticipate? What is it in your view?
6: I think it's everything taking a little bit longer than we anticipate. So I'm, I'm really focused on what sort of a, a sort of a fiscal cliff household are going to experience if we aren't able to extend some benefits um, if banks aren't able to maybe um, renegotiate some of some of these loans or, or some of the the, the debts that are owed out there, you could see a pretty pronounced fiscal clip coming here towards the end of the year, and I think that's really going to be something that shapes the recovery is what sort of a platform are we lifting off from, and if we don't get i, I think some at least some sort of extension, if not another round of stimulus, we may be coming from a, a little bit more of a weak point that we would like than we would like to be when we do try and, and fire up the economy again and that could that could also really determine. The, the recovery we get, so that's right. really what I'm watching: fiscal cliff at the end of the year.
0: And we know rolling that rock back up the hill is not easy. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Um, Sean, thank you so much. Have a a good and safe holiday. Happy Thanksgiving. Sean Cruz, he is manager of Trader Strategy at TD Ameritrade, joining us on the phone from Chicago on this Wednesday. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.